I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question. Today, we once again are dedicating our full attention to the coronavirus pandemic, which continues to spread across the country, growing at alarming rates in the most populated areas. In fact, on Friday, March 20th, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, marked a distressing new milestone. I hate to say this, but it's true. We are now the epicenter of this crisis. New York State has nearly half of the nation's coronavirus cases, and the number is growing faster than anyone predicted. As of this recording, the positive COVID-19 count in New York City is doubling every three days. Here's Governor Andrew Cuomo on March 24th. One of the forecasters said to me, we were looking at a freight train coming across the country, we're now looking at a bullet train because the numbers are going up that quickly. What that means is that the peak of coronavirus infections will be much higher and hit New York much sooner than expected, giving the city's vast network of hospitals, which are already under tremendous strain, less time to prepare, less time to get the critical equipment they need to care for those patients, and less time to replenish their stash of protective gear so that medical staff can continue to work without getting sick. Which leads to my next question. How are emergency rooms in New York City faring now? And how are they bracing for what's to come? And later on, what could have been done to allow us to be better prepared for this pandemic? But first... Hi, Rob. Yes, hi. Hi, it's Katie. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Oh my God, thank you for taking time to do this. Dr. Robert Femia is the Chair of Emergency Medicine at NYU Langone in New York City. In that role, he's in charge of the emergency departments of several NYU hospitals across the metropolitan area. We see about 500,000 patients in all of our emergency departments across uh, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Long Island. And we've seen a couple of consistent um, things. One, um, overall, at the majority of our 
emergency departments, the volume is down, but we have a huge spike in the number of respiratory cases that are serious requiring, requiring intubation. And that number seems to be growing every day. I get, a, I get a report every 12 hours from our emergency department's shift report. One of our ADs yesterday in a 12-hour period intubated seven patients and put them on ventilators. That's a huge number for one 12-hour period of time. And then you know, we have variability. The next day it might be one or two. The next day it might be six or seven again. So there's capacity right now, but everyone's trying to figure out how, how do you make sure that there's capacity down the road. To help with some of this, we stood up a 24-hour-a-day um, video visit uh, telemedicine where now we're seeing a 1,000 visits on the telemedicine platform, uh, trying to keep people off the subways from spreading disease, giving them advice, and keeping them out of the emergency departments. So we have seen some good um, impact there where our overall ED volume is down for people that are not seriously ill, but we have seen a huge spike in the number of people who are very sick and needing to be put on ventilators. Well, let's first talk about the telemedicine patients, Rob, you're seeing. Basically, they need to know if their symptoms are serious enough to go to the hospital if they, in fact, have COVID-19. In most of those cases, are you able to encourage them to, in fact, stay at home and to self-quarantine? We have. Uh, one, one of the things with the telemedicine visits that we're seeing is that there's a lot of um, public fear, and it's grounded in, in really a lack of information. And so we're seeing many patients um, who really have a couple of questions. One, they want to know if they're going to get seriously ill suddenly and die. Number two, they want to know if they need a test for COVID. And number three, they want to know, okay, what symptoms do I watch for if I quarantine at home? When someone calls you, particularly an elderly person, and worries that that person is going to become extremely ill from this, what do you tell them? The majority of calls that we're seeing are from people that are younger that have uh, symptoms that most of us, if it wasn't this pandemic, would think are typical winter respiratory colds, uh, low-grade fever, cough, um, runny nose, sore throat. The issue is that those symptoms overlap with the same symptoms as covid and um, what I tell patients is that uh, most of us will probably, or many of us will probably get COVID and um, not even realize it. We'll just think it's a winter cold and the majority of us will do just fine. Um, and really the people that need to go to the ERs are those who have those typical respiratory symptoms and then those symptoms progress to um, shortness of breath or difficulty in breathing. And so we give them advice about that. And we also talk about the need for testing and for most patients, what we tell them is, you know, if your symptoms are in that minimal group right now, you're not having shortness of breath, whether you have a COVID test or not does not change the information and the guidance that I'm going to give you right now, which is to stay at home, self-quarantine, um, uh, Go to the CDC or other government websites um, if you're unsure about the best way to self-quarantine at home. We usually tell people you should do things uh, like if you share a bedroom with someone to sleep in a separate bedroom. If you have a second bathroom, try to uh, use that bathroom. Uh, do good disinfection of counter surfaces and those things. And then we give them guidance about what you need to watch for, and that being the increasing shortness of breath. And for those patients, you should come to the emergency department. 
most people are pretty relieved when they hear that because they're just not sure. The experience that we're seeing in the emergency department is that the majority of the patients that are ending up on respite, uh, on ventilators are elderly, but we are seeing people in younger age groups that are very sick also. I'll tell you what's been the uplifting part of these conversations is that we're seeing many people that are younger generations that are sick. And they're telling me, you know, I don't want to go out and potentially infect older people. And I don't want my grandmother or my grandparents to be at risk. And so um, that part's been very uplifting to, to hear. So it's that's positive because we've seen so many stories, Rob, of of kids going on spring break and being irresponsible. So it's nice to hear that younger people are actually thinking otherwise and trying to be more responsible. Let's talk about personal protective equipment or PPE, a word that the general population now understands that used to be the purview of the medical community. We're talking about the masks, the gowns, the gloves that protect you and your team from coronavirus. Um, Are you all getting the equipment you need? There's not enough. And um, we have the equipment now, but we're worried that, um, as is everybody, that we'll run out. And so we started conservation measures that are um, safe, but they're psychologically taxing on the doctors and nurses that work. So um, some of the things that we've done um, are to cohort any patient that comes into our emergency departments into just one area of the ER, whereas before all this happened, you you know, we have multiple teams and we have big emergency departments and you could go to any part of the emergency department. Now we we put all the patients in, in one area that have those symptoms. And in that area, our doctors and nurses wear those N95 masks that you're probably hearing about. And those masks are in short supply. And, and how those masks help is they help with airborne or or virus that's floating in the air. And typically they're used for tuberculosis or things like that. COVID appears to be mostly droplet. So if somebody sneezes on you, coughs on you, those that liquid hits you um, and doesn't really hang in the air. But there are some indications that for certain things it does hang in the air, like when we're doing an intubation or uh, those things. So um, what we've had to do is to somewhat limit how many times we change out of that equipment. So you might wear your same mask with a face shield, uh, for example, uh, on the entire shift uh, instead of changing it um, multiple times a shift. Uh, we do change our gowns and other things, and or if we get sprayed, of course we change. But that's something that we never had to do. We never had to worry about conservation. And um, to an emergency room doctor or nurse, it's it's an emotional drain. Um, you're already in a um, in a in basically a spacesuit that you can only change out part of it. You're hot. You're sweaty. Yeah, everybody's concerned that you know can the supply chain catch up. Has anybody who works with you have any of your colleagues gotten sick? Yes. Um, so many of our people have gotten sick. Doctors and nurses with fevers or coughs. We they all get sent home. When COVID testing was available, they were tested. Some have been positive, some have been negative. The good news is all of all of our people who actually have been positive and sick are all better and return to work. 
Now we've done some things. We do have some um, more senior physicians. We've kept them uh, in parts of the emergency department where they're not exposed. You know, just knowing that that most people that uh, have a little more candles on their birthday cake are more at risk. But no, the good news is is at NYU Langone here, every every one of our doctors and nurses that's gotten sick has recovered just fine. I want to bring up a question from a listener. Her name is Mary. She's a nurse. She doesn't say where she works, but she wondered if healthcare workers should isolate themselves from their families. I'm assuming even if they're asymptomatic, if and if so, how? Have you gotten such a question yourself? What are you advising your colleagues to do? So one of the things is that, um, you know, just like the general public, um, you know, our colleagues in the emergency departments um, here in New York and across the country come to work every day, but everybody has their own anxieties about this. And so, for example, um, we've created the ability for people to shower before they actually go home because they're wondering, am I going to spread something? Am I an asymptomatic carrier? I have people that I work with who have decided they have a little baby at home and with their significant other that they're not going to go home. They've got a friend's place to stay at who has a vacant apartment or those kind of things. All those questions we run, we run by our infectious disease specialists. But I think, you know, a lot of people, even when they're doing the best practices at home, whether that's trying to keep a distance, even though they may not have any um, symptoms, they're still wondering, they're still worried for themselves and they're worried for their family. And so they're taking, whether it's appropriate precautions, extra precautions, yeah, people worry about those things and they try to keep some distance. Um, When I do these video visits also, besides working in the ED, we do get people, another group that we're concerned about is if you live with somebody who's immunocompromised. You know, I've had people tell, you know, talk to me saying, you know, they, they can't get COVID testing as of today, um, that seems to be constantly changing the availability of public testing. They're concerned because someone they live with has a multiple myeloma or some form of cancer. They're aware that those people are at an increased risk, and so they want to do the right thing, try to keep their distance, try to socially isolate, but try to do that while you're you know, sharing a home with somebody. I've had people tell me they're living in their basement if they have a basement. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, as people try to keep each other as safe as possible. When you think about the next few weeks, do you have any idea when this is going to peak? No idea. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard. Hard to say. Um, I'm seeing sicker patients and in increasing numbers. I don't know when that'll level off. Our, our general approach is. And that we need to be prepared for this to be a marathon and not a sprint. And so making sure that our doctors and nurses get adequate respite, making sure that we have relief physicians and nurses available should it, should much of the workforce go down temporarily or have to go home because they're sick. So our approach is um, do our best on a day-to-day basis, but our eye is looking down the road. I always tell people that, you know, working in an emergency department on a Regular day is like running a, um, a two-minute no-huddle offense in football, but for eight hours, and now you throw in um, some uncertainty into that mix. It's it's like you're 
trying to do that in a swimming pool. But um, people that work in emergency departments are special. They have big hearts. They feel for patients and human suffering and um, are really up for this challenge and, and just want to know or just want to feel that there's support for them and that support looks like proper PPE. And um, I will tell you that doing some of these video visits also has been uplifting because so many times people have expressed gratitude for what ER doctors and nurses do. We're getting more thank yous than we normally do. We're seeing young people talk about um, how they're worried about older folks. And there's this multi-generational kind of commitment and kindness and empathy that's on display. So, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're all as a nation going through a lot and we're all in this together. Um, but I've seen some really encouraging signs of um, what the future looks like and um, seeing a lot of people's inner kindness rise to the surface. And um, that makes me feel really good. That was Dr. Robert Femia, Chair of Emergency Medicine at NYU Langone in New York City. NYU may be managing now, but other hospitals around New York City and indeed the country are already struggling under the pressure of the coronavirus. In the weeks to come, I'll be continuing to reach out to those working on the front lines of this pandemic. And I'll bring you those stories here on this podcast, also on Instagram Live, which you can find by searching my name, Katie Couric, on Instagram. Up next, why wasn't this country better prepared? We'll talk with an expert whose job was to do just that. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. 
We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back, everyone. We're continuing our coverage of the coronavirus. This week, taking a look at pandemic preparedness from the emergency room to the Oval Office. Hi, Beth. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Beth Cameron is the former senior director for global health security and biodefense. This unit, which was a part of the White House National Security Council, was established by the Obama administration after the 2014 Ebola epidemic. And it was intended to be a smoke alarm, a warning of the first signs of a global health crisis. In 2018, however, the Trump administration disbanded the unit. The Office of Global Health Security and Biodefense was set up after the Ebola epidemic in order to get ahead of outbreaks before they become epidemics or pandemics. We were really worried um, coming out of Ebola. It was a hugely devastating outbreak that killed over 11,000 people. Um, But we were looking at that as ultimately an event that stayed relatively circumscribed to three major countries. Of course, there were lots of concerns that it would spread more rapidly. And there was a huge global intervention that the U.S. helped lead to keep that from happening. But we were very worried about exactly what we're seeing now, a large scale um, respiratory illness um, that would become a pandemic. And we knew that we weren't prepared for that as a nation or as a world. Let's imagine a world in which that office had not been dissolved and you were still leading it, Beth. What role would it be playing right now in the midst of this crisis? It would really be the best way to describe the office's role now would be as a coordinating hub. So the office was playing a role in in working with um, high-level senior officials and sending information about problems and issues up the chain so that they would be resolved quickly. But also really importantly, we're listening to staff at the working level across departments and agencies. So when there was a problem or a challenge or a need um, in the States or in another country, we were able to figure out, okay, what's the real issue? Who's not agreeing? And then elevate it really quickly. You helped transition the incoming Trump administration. You directly briefed then Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert. Did you have a sense at that time the new administration was committed to the objectives of this office? Yes. During the transition, I had quite a good experience uh, with transitioning this specific office from President Obama to President Trump. And both the outgoing team and the incoming team, particularly, as you mentioned, Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert, had been through um, pandemic threats before in the Bush administration. And so there's actually quite a lot of support for continuing the role of this office, and not only from Tom Bossert, but also from National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who I briefed before I left. You said you were mystified when the Trump administration dissolved the office in May of 2018. Now, there seems to be a difference of opinion here with your op-ed in the Washington Post and someone within the Trump administration named Tim Morrison, who believes that your account was wrong. So, Tell me, as you understand it, what happened? Can you explain? I can. And and I think that Tim's op-ed was less of a rebuttal of what I said and more of an explanation of the organizational structure 
um, and what happened. So my understanding of what happened is that Tim Ziemer, who took my position as the head of the office, um, left the White House and the people who worked on his team were dissolved and were moved into another directorate, the directorate that Tim Morrison ran. And it's definitely true that some good policies did come out of that office following the dissolution of the pandemic's team. But the difference, the critical difference is that there wasn't a team or a senior level person whose only responsibility it was to handle pandemic threats. And that was something that coming out of the Ebola epidemic, we realized was missing, that we were all focused on epidemics. We were all focused on the Ebola outbreak, but we didn't have a singular mission with a direct reporting line to the National and Homeland Security Advisor, where our job was only to focus on that issue. And it's like a transnational threat, like counterterrorism, um, like climate change. It's something that when we see what's happening now, it's easy to understand why you'd want to have a singularly focused pandemics team. But when you don't have a pandemic happening, I can see how it would, how a national security advisor might look at that and think, well, maybe we don't need a, t a team that's solely focused on this issue. And I just completely disagree with that. This is a lesson that lots of administrations have learned. So there have been senior level officials in the last couple of administrations focused on pandemic threats. And usually it's after an outbreak or a pandemic when that lesson um, is learned. And so one of the things that happened in the Obama administration is a couple of lessons came together. One of those lessons was that we needed a senior level official whose only job it was with a direct reporting line to leadership. The other lesson is that we needed a team that looked at homeland and national security issues together. When President Trump was asked about this, Beth, during one of the White House press conferences, he insisted he didn't know anything about that. But you did disband the White House pandemic office and the officials that were working in that office left this administration abruptly. So what responsibility do you take to that? And the officials that worked in that office said that you that the White House lost valuable time because that office wasn't disbanded. What do you make of that? Well, I just think it's a nasty question because what we've done. Were you surprised at that? And who exactly was in charge of getting rid of the position? I was surprised uh, by that. Um, I was surprised because there was quite a lot of press about getting rid of the office in 2018 when it happened. And there were uh, you know, a number of high-level people in Congress, um, think tanks who wrote letters or spoke out and said that this was a mistake. So I was surprised that he wasn't aware. Um, the All I can say is that the dissolution of the office happened around the same time that Tom Bosser left. So right after he left, and right as National Security Advisor John Bolton came on board. And so I, th I think this really was part of a, an overall restructuring and a decision was made um, that this reorganization was a, was a better organization for the White House. The White House gets to choose its organizational structure, but it's unfortunate that this lesson got unlearned in the process. Let's talk about some of the warning signs, though, that existed for this current epidemic, pandemic rather, can you talk about some of the flashing red lights that we saw? Because there were a number of them, weren't there? Yeah, there were a number of them. Um, you know, going back to the beginning and watching the outbreak unfold in China, looking at a, a novel coronavirus that had um, the ability to spread between people, that was um, definitely something in our playbook of concerns, you know, a new a disease that could spread more quickly between people with, with a higher 
mortality. And I think the second that that information became available, that would have flipped um, a switch for us to start meeting more regularly and thinking about what kinds of um, what kinds of preparedness plans we needed to put in place or dust off in the United States. And when was that? That was in January when those cases really started coming coming to light. There was absolutely a bit of a delay in the world learning about this, but we did learn about it um, in January um, several months ago. I want to mention something even prior to that. According to the New York Times, there was a training exercise led by multiple federal agencies, 12 states, and private stakeholders that simulated a scenario where a respiratory virus dubbed the Crimson Contagion rapidly spread through the United States. What can you tell us about that? Because before we talk about January and February, let's talk about October. Yeah, well, we can go back even further than, than October. Um, we can go back to the transition between the administrations. So back in January of 2017, before the Obama administration left, there was a, a, a half-day um, discussion between the outgoing cabinet, the outgoing White House leadership, and the incoming team, the presumptive nominees for the Trump administration. And we looked at a number of homeland threats. And one of the small number of things highlighted for the incoming team was was pandemics. So I was in that discussion and helped put that that discussion together. And there was a very robust conversation between outgoing officials and incoming officials about a respiratory agent. Um, In that case, I think we were looking at a flu variant that could do um, something very similar to what's happening now. And then fast forward to a number of tabletops that happened outside of government, as well as the one highlighted in the New York Times, which actually I was not aware of that exercise and wasn't in government when it was conducted. But reading the reports of it, it looks um, eerily similar uh, to what's happening now and certainly is something that White House leadership should and would have been aware of. So why do you think they didn't pay attention to that? I mean, the the serendipity of that uh, simulation is pretty uncanny. I think a couple of things, just having gone through these exercises, they they can they can based on who's in charge of of acting on what comes out, they either become uh, playbooks for action and urgent action, or they become um, overwhelming and people don't know where to start to fill what is apparent now to us in the world is just a massive massive set of gaps in pandemic preparedness. So um, all I can say is that this was this this issue of pandemic preparedness should be funded the way that we fund military defense. It needs to be um, it needs to be c- completely ramped up. It needs to include um, a, a massive lessons learned when this is all over. And I think um, moreover, it's it's inexplicable to me uh, why we haven't been able to act on some of the major recommendations that have come out of out of exercises um, throughout the last several months and years. So when you dig deep and try to understand it, what conclusions do you draw? I draw a couple. Um, one is that it's really hard to imagine a scenario on the scale of what's happening now. And so we've developed many tools over the last couple of decades to help us with pandemic threats. One is our strategic national stockpile, which has been in the news a lot lately. Another is um, the global health security agenda, which is something the Obama administration launched to assist other countries to get prepared. Both of those efforts, just as in another is our biomedical um, research and development agency, BARDA, which helps advance medical countermeasures. 
these are massive efforts that different presidents launched, which when we look at them in retrospect, made a huge difference in our ability to deal with this crisis, but didn't go nearly far enough. And so I think part of it is when you look at the reports written about 9-11, it's a failure of imagination, not to imagine what could happen. We're pretty good at that in tabletop exercises, but to actually um, get past the imagining and into the filling of the major gaps that we'll have to deal with in the worst case scenario. And I think that's been challenging for, for many leaders to wrap their heads around, including me uh, when I was in government. Um, but I also think that it's a, it's a failure of, of not having enough people in government whose day-to-day job it is to be thinking about those gaps. I put out a, a note to doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, et cetera, to tell me about what they were experiencing. And it's heartbreaking. I just got a message this morning from someone who is a doctor in Louisiana who's already lost several colleagues to the coronavirus, who can, who's writing her will. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to me, these young people who are working so hard on the front lines. And I, I don't want this to be a coulda, woulda, shoulda, but there has to be some lessons learned. I hope there's a, a commission similar to the 9-11 commission to look back on this. But what could have been done to provide to our most critically important healthcare professionals, the protective equipment they needed. How could we have supported these people more and protected them? I think it's an, it's an excellent question and it's the hardest question to answer. I think right now um, it's very clear that we need a, na- a much more nationalized response than we currently have. And um, I think going back a couple of months, um, we should have been thinking forward about that nationalized response. So what I mean by that is right now we're seeing reports and I'm hearing them too, talking to mayor's offices and people who are out on the front lines in the field and they're cannibalizing each other. They're trying to buy equipment um, over top of each other. And the problem is that we have a system in the United States for responding to a pandemic that is built on what the states will request and that that's still the system that the federal government seems to be um, building its response off of. And this isn't a hurricane. Hurricanes are hugely devastating, but they usually don't affect all 50 states at once. And usually they don't continue um, for months and months and months. Um, And so our system is built for providing and scaling up specific commodities and then getting them out quickly to the field, but not ramping up production continually for all 50 states. And so it's really, it's clear to me, at least at this moment, that we need someone in charge of the national logistics response, Um, working with FEMA or maybe from within FEMA, but planning this the way we do a massive military operation. I don't mean to militarize the response in that sense, but using those tools that we have to transport, produce, and supply our country. And it doesn't seem like we've kicked that into high gear, nor that we were planning to do that um, a couple of months ago when it would have made a much bigger impact. So what's the solution now? I mean, these people are desperate. They're reusing these N95 masks. They're trying to sanitize them. They don't have the equipment they need. How the heck do we get this equipment to these people pronto. 
So I see two solutions and and neither of them are perfect and neither of them are fast enough. But solution number one is that we, um, we have a national registry that starts monitoring where all the PPE is and brings together all of these great um, blooming initiatives that are happening out in the field under an umbrella that can actually match make much more effectively between um, states and entities that need uh, personal protective equipment and other supplies the most. And that would require a real nationalized response with a logistics plan and someone in charge of it who knows how to, to plan, uh, you know, um, on the order of a military operation, somebody like the head of Transcom who does this for a living when we, um, when we have a, a massive operation overseas. The other option, um, if that can't happen or won't happen or isn't agreed to happen, is that the governor's could um, come together and decide to do this themselves. Um, they could work with um, a coordinator on their own. They could work with the private sector, with Amazon and you know UPS and others who have logistics um, chains themselves to create a more nationalized system across the 50 states. Um, and I, I've talked to a few people about that idea, almost an, an air traffic controller concept for the, for the response. And I think that it's something that could work, but it would really need the right person and agreement from the states to do it. The other thing that really makes me frustrated right now looking at the response is that ideally um, what we do, what the United States of America does is we lead the global response and we're not right now. And we should be making enough to staff and stock our own country. And then we should be shipping it and coordinating the response all over the world. And right now, we're one of the only countries in the world that can actually do that, even though it's hard to see that we can at this moment. We have the capability, the logistics capability, the production and manufacturing capability to do that, and we're not. We should make too many, and then we should staff the global response. We'll return with Beth Cameron after this short break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're back with Beth Cameron, who ran the White House Pandemic Office from 2016 until March of 2017. A year later, the Trump administration disbanded the office, a move that she says left the country less prepared for pandemics like COVID-19. What about these tests um, and the CDC? I mean, did the CDC just royally screw up? I hate to be so blunt about this, but did the CDC fall down on the job? What happened with these this whole testing thing? Why weren't there enough? And why are there still not enough? I think there are a couple of failures on the testing front, um, and I've done some forensics on this. Um, there are other people that have, too. I actually lay the criticism for this not directly at CDC's feet, although certainly there were some challenges at CDC in this as well. I lay it at the feet of leadership because, honestly, um, when CDC realized that their test kit was going to have problems, um, yes, someone should have sent a flare-up saying, hey, we have problems, let's have a backup, let's order the WHO kits, let's put them through emergency use authorization so we can do that. But somebody else uh, at HHS, in the government, at the White House, um, in, in leadership position should have said, look, while you're working on this test and perfecting it, we are going to create a backup because it is too important that we start testing now. Um, that's not necessarily the job of the people manufacturing the test kit at CDC. It's their job to alert, but it's somebody else's job to say, okay, we're going to make the decision for you that this isn't the only test that we're going to have. And that's the kind of decision that the president, the vice president, you know, the lead for this, uh, for this pandemic in the White House should be bugging every day about. So, And to go full circle, Beth, that's the kind of issue this pandemic commission would have been all over and on top of because it would have been part of its uh, centralized role to make sure that, you know, these things were were taken care of in a in a very efficient, fast way. That's that was exactly the reason that the office was created, to be able to get above the day to day challenges that people were facing, which are sometimes really hard to surface. As you know, when there's a problem, it's really hard for people at the working level to admit that the problem is great, especially if it's a problem that they don't usually experience. CDC is usually quite good at creating excellent test kits um, and diagnostics. When they have a problem, somebody should say, look, you're having a problem. That's okay. We're going to help you solve the problem, but we can't wait for you. Um, that's, that's leadership's job. And finally, Beth, there's been some rumblings and indication that the administration is weighing the cost on the economy with the cost of pu- on public health. And, and and human life, really, uh, that there is some drive in the White House, ostensibly led by the president himself, 
to try to take a look in a couple of weeks to returning or making efforts to loosen the guidelines and mandates and to get the economy going again. So I think Easter Sunday and you'll have packed churches all over our country. I think it would be a beautiful time. And it's just about the timeline that I think is right. This is against the advice of, I think, universal advice of public health advocates and officials and experts. Um, Can you weigh in on the rumblings we're hearing about that? I don't even think it's just the public health experts. I think it's every credible person that I've talked to. Um, We can't relax these measures. And it would be bad, actually, for the economy. I mean, if we weren't even thinking about the huge toll on lives and the at-risk and the elderly, if we even put that aside for a second, this would be bad for the economy because until the caseload comes down, until our hospital system stabilizes, until we have a steady supply chain for all of the things we've been talking about, personal protective equipment um, and reagents, test kits, et cetera, until all of those things um, get to a, a stable level, if we turn people back on and send them back to work, we're, we'll see increasing spikes, crashing healthcare system. People will then not go to work or they'll be sick, there'll be confusion, and ultimately the economy will tank again. And it might even be, it might, I'm not an economist, but I surmise it might be worse because it'll be even more unpredictable um, how that will happen across the country. So I think it would be a terrible idea to relax these measures right now when they're actually starting to make a difference. There does need to be hope, though, um, for the American public and for the economy. And I think that hope is letting the social distancing do its job, watching the case counts start to fall the way that they've fallen in other countries that have done this, and then massive testing so that we know who is infected and ultimately also who has been infected so that people can be isolated on a case-by-case basis and the people that don't have the disease or who have recovered from it can start getting back to work. And I think that's what we have to be looking for and we have to have um, specific fact-based measures that drive us um, in that direction, but we're definitely not there yet. It's fascinating to the science of this virus is so complex. Um, And are you optimistic that that the scientists studying this that that are working so hard on developing a vaccine who are trying to identify the antibodies that some people have naturally to this virus, that that science will come up with some answers relatively soon? I'm optimistic um, for sure that we're gonna get there. I, I think most of the experts I trust, including folks that are out at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which has been looking at coronaviruses and vaccine candidates for coronaviruses for a while now. I'm optimistic that we'll eventually get a vaccine, but it will probably be 12 to 18 months. I am optimistic that we'll eventually get to some therapeutics that might work for some individuals, and hopefully we'll get to some therapeutics that work for the elderly and for other at-risk populations, because that's where, if if we can help identify a few things that work, um, that would be even just to, to make it less, um, less deadly, even if it still has a terrible course in some people. Um, I think that would be helpful. I am optimistic. Um, but I think we're in this for, for months, um, until that point and certainly at least a year for a vaccine. Well, hopefully this terrible chapter in our history and, and the world's history 
will provide some lessons learned, uh, I have to believe that we will look back and try to get a handle on how we prevent this from happening in the future. That was Beth Cameron, currently the Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And that does it for this episode of Next Question. I know a lot of this can be tough to hear. These are indeed scary times. But if we do our part, if we heed the experts' warnings and stay home and find virtual ways to connect, we can get through this. In the meantime, to lighten the load, I'd like to highlight an act of kindness. You might remember last week, I asked you to share the good deeds you've seen or experienced during these dark times. And we've gotten some really touching ones. I'd like to share one message I received from a listener named Lee Stewart, who lives in Bristol, Virginia. A couple of days ago, my brother and I had to leave our 89-year-old mother alone in the ICU of the local hospital because it had to ban visitation due to the coronavirus. Of course, we totally agree with the precautions, and even she understood that they were necessary, but it's so difficult, especially when right before I left, she clasped my hand and said, I don't want you to leave me. However, her nurses have been absolute angels. They have adopted her and even fixed the FaceTime on her phone so that my brother and I can chat with her. So every afternoon, one of the nurses holds up the phone and calls us, and we are able to have a nice long talk with our mom and um, just really see how she's doing, and she can see us. That gives her a lot of comfort. Um, We can't even describe how grateful we are for these medical professionals who are not only using their medical knowledge on the front lines of this crisis, but who also are providing a conduit of compassion that enables families like ours to stay together, even though at times that's only in a virtual way. Thanks for your hard work and inspiration during this crisis. And thanks so much to the RNs and other medical staff who are both warriors and angels during this time. Thank you, Lee. We wish you and your family well. And of course, the same to all of our listeners. You can keep sending your moments of kindness. I think we could all use a dose of the feels. Just leave your name and a detailed message at 844-479-7883. Again, 844-479-7883. You can also email me at info at Just put kindness in the headline. For the most up-to-date information and guidance on the coronavirus pandemic, please visit the CDC and the World Health Organization. You can also check out our morning newsletter, Wake Up Call. You can subscribe to that and get everything you need to know every morning in your inbox. Just go to katiecouric.com. 
We'll be continuing this special coronavirus coverage on Next Question for the weeks to come. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time and my next question, I'm Katie Couric. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe, everyone. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Courtney Litz, and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Our show producer is Bethann Macaluso. The associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing by Derek Clements, Dylan Fagan, and Lowell Berlanti. Mixing by Dylan Fagan. Our researcher is Gabriel Luzer. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.